Hey, uh, Jimmy Valentine, that was a really great game-winning score you had there at the sporting event. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate that. You can look for that card really soon at Colorado Coins, Cards, and Comics. They got tons of sports memorabilia. Jimmy Valentine, RKO Radio News. Jimmy, what makes Colorado Coins, Cards, and Comics your favorite comic store in the Colorado area? I'm telling you, forget about it. A comic collector like me, I can save 20% on a hold slot. Duh. Plus, it's hard for me. I'm on the road all the time. If I want the amazing Spider-Man and I'm not around, it's in my hold slot. Jimmy Valentine, what do you have to say about your recent allegations about steroid use? <laughs> I'm not going to answer that question, but I am going to tell you that if I want to get Magic the Gathering cards, I go to Colorado Coins, Cards, and Comics. <laughs> the little square Jimmy Jr., he loves those. So go to 6700 Wadsworth Boulevard in Nevada, Colorado. They'll take really good care of you. Hold on, Jimmy. One Jimmy, more question. One more question Wait, no, no, don't go yet. Does this sound familiar? You're interested in purchasing that new action figure, but aren't sure if it's worth it? Well, come check out PlasticExplosion.com, where you can go to find all the latest and greatest action figure previews and reviews. Every week, they'll be bringing you reviews and picks from your favorite collections, such as DC Universe, Masters of the Universe Classics, Marvel Universe, Star Wars, Transformers, and many more. Come check us out at PlasticExplosion.com. That's PlasticExplosion.com. Barbecue that can't be beat. Try Birdman Barbecue Sauce. Available and original and spicy. These robust full flavor sauces have the awesome power to kick your taste buds in their face. And for that smoke and taste on everything you eat, try new Birdman Smoke and Rub. Caution! Meat left unrubbed may suffer from flavor performance anxiety. You can pick up Birdman Barbecue at local area Ace Hardware stores. Ruff's Barbecue in Golden, and the Danny Cash Hot Shop Off-Broadway. You can also like us on Facebook at Birdman BBQ. Welcome to the podcast. I am Ryan. To my right is... James. To my left is... Brad. And welcome to another exciting interview that we did at Telluride Horror Show. This week, we are bringing you the interview we did with Rafael Antonio Ruiz, who directed The Quiet the Quiet Girl's Guide to Violence. <laughs> you which, always have a hard time. I, know, I don't know why I can't say it. I don't know yeah. why I just can't say it. The movie's really good, though. A short film, actually. Um, I was one of the lucky ones who was able to get up and see it because you guys were manning the booth. Yeah. Um, I was part of a block, and it was definitely one of the standouts of the block that I saw. Yeah. Um, so he he was really cool, and he sat down and talked to us for a lengthy time, not only about his movie, but also geek stuff that we're interested in. And he's another guy who just came up to us, was really cool, um, which is was really interesting. I always find sometimes you expect filmmakers to maybe not want to talk to you, but um, you find they're almost exactly like you, except they yeah. make movies. Yeah, he was even nice enough that then the the next morning when we were having breakfast, like uh, he came over and was like, "Hey, can I you know s- yeah. sit down with you guys?" Just because we ended up being at the same place at the same time, um, and then we all sat around and talked movies together. It was cool, which is really cool. So um, sit back, enjoy the interview with him. Um, also, I'll give a little shout out to the, the star of A Quiet Girl's Guide to Violence, which is Jenny Marie Jemison. And you can follow her on Twitter, too. Um, and she's really good in the movie. Really good. Call it a movie? Short film? Sorry, short well, it's, film. Well, it's technically a TV pilot. But he'll he'll get into yeah, it. Yeah, he'll explain it way better than I could. Yeah. So sit back, crack open a fresca, and enjoy the interview. <laughs> 
with Raphael. I did that because James said Fresca sucks and it doesn't, <laughs> especially the peach kind. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Ryan. This is James. Over there is Brad. And we are sitting with... Rafael Antonio Ruiz. Um, I'm director of the short film Quiet Girl's Guide to Violence, which is currently playing at the Toronto Horror Show. Nice. Yeah, you know, I just got done seeing it, and um, what was the inspiration behind making this movie? Or, did you write it as well? You did, Yes, correct? I was one of the writers on it. Um, what happened was me and Ginny Marie Jemison, who is the uh, lead actress. And she's amazing. And uh, she also was a producer on the project, and she was one of the writers on the project. And what happened was Ginny Marie is this little force of nature. You meet these human beings working on films that just sort of they have a they just have an energy to them from the first moment you meet them. You go like they just they're just full of life. And she was one of those people that just was out there doing work and just sort of invigorated people around them. And what happened was she was like, I really want to do something with you. And when an utterly beautiful woman asks you to do anything, it's, it's not really an argument. It's not really an argument. Um, but Ginny Marie wanted to shoot a Project Rant with me. Project Rant was the series uh, produced in Austin, Texas by uh, Cliff Wildman and Luis Esteban Cavisi. And what they would do is um, they would find um, sort of anonymous Craigslist uh, rants. And then it would be people complaining about anything, and then they would dramatize them. Now, there's a few season, a series like that now, but back in like 2008 or so, no one was doing this. And they were one of the first guys that sort of uncredited did it. They did it for about three, four years, and they finally went, we want to go on and make our own movies and say moved on from it. But me and a bunch of buddies loved the show and sort of tried to contribute actors when we could because Austin has a sort of sort – of bed of really good sort of theater talent it has i think per capita the highest amount of uh theater per person in the community it's a it's a really good place for it oh yeah and so what happened was is Ginny marie had done a few because i'd introduced her to them and then she was like well i want to do one with you so i picked out one where she would play this sort of passive aggressive nerdy girl Jeannie Marie is not passive-aggressive, and she's not nerdy in any way, shape, or form. But uh, I was like, I wanted to do something new with you. And so we were literally shot in like a parking lot for like 30 minutes about about two years ago, a little bitty Project Rant episode about this uh, woman that had uh, been uh, persecuted as a kid, and boys had like uh, done some sexual harassment, and she like took a piece of asphalt and pegged him with it. And she was like, you know, I don't. I'm glad I did it, and they deserved it, and people just deserve it. And I added a little thing at the end because, again, it was just a little rant by someone online. And I just added a bit, okay, and then at the end, you pull a bat out and walk out of the car (laughs) and slam the door shut. And people had, like, a really big reaction to it. And Ginny in particular really – she was really attracted to the character. And so she was like, I want to do more. I want to do the character more. I want to do something with it. So I went, okay, here's what we can do. We can do another 90-second short. No one will care about that because we already did it. We can do a feature, but I'm a little bored by that because I've, I've shot a few features in these style, like no money, and I know the work involved. And I was like, I, I, I don't see the fun of that. We need to keep this fun. Yeah. So I said, hey, imagine that we are doing a BBC series where there's like six episodes that are all awesome, and then <laughs> maybe there's another season, maybe there's not, but people sort of watch Spaced, and then they'll rewatch those first six episodes a thousand times. I was yeah. like, let's do that BBC series everyone loves. And what we'll do is we'll just do the first episode of that because that's all we can afford to do. And then we'll design it to be a self-contained thing so that – 
you know, it's kind of like when you watch the first Star Wars movie. If another Star Wars movie never happened, you could still rewatch the crap out of that movie. <laughs> yeah. And so that's the principle I tried to use is like, let's make this a self-contained story where it tells one thing. And then if people like it, well, then there's a whole universe we've created in it. Because the, um, I, think, I think I said it at our little sort of Q&A afterwards. It's 15 minutes, but there's so much plot in it that it's dense. I, I call it like a pastrami sandwich with a lot of meat and a little bread. Because there's like not a lot of pausing. There's a lot of it's, – it's a dense thing. Yeah. Um, and, and we figured that if we did it, then we could sort of build up attention for the short uh, as a series. Well, pretty much after our first festival, we premiered at Fantastic Fest a few weeks ago, uh, reaction was pretty immediate. People were interested in it. So we're developing it as a series right now. I can't say the details. But we're sort of pulling together the first season of about a six or so episodes uh, that we would like to do. It'll probably be web-based because, I mean, if we ever were lucky enough to be on TV, we would then be lucky enough to have it taken from us and right. worked on by people <laughs> that were names and all that. Yeah, no, it's funny. I when I came down here and you know, because uh, we knew we were going to talk to you, I said, "Oh man, you know that movie's really good, and I think it could be a whole f- feature because you know there's something dark about this girl that uh, she was picked on and she doesn't take it anymore." And um, so you a- answered one of my questions. I was going to ask if you're never going to make it to a feature, but you went on a, a, a way cooler idea than making it a feature. Well, mm. I think it's part of like if you had a feature, the feature would literally be what you saw expanded mm-hmm. because a feature can only have one idea. One theme, one premise. But what I love about television is sort of like, you know, we've been geeking out about comic books here. Comic books can violently change tone and focus from issue to issue. And the thing about a good TV show like a Breaking Bad or a Dexter or anything is that you can sort of have a universe that you can explore and look at from different points of view for short frames of time. And that was my feeling is it's not interesting to follow Holly by herself. She's only interesting in context to a full world of people, which is why there's a lot of other characters in the movie that talk a lot more than her because she's reacting to those people. And that was sort of important to me is she only plays – she's only works as an enigma to me because, you know, once the, you know, the mystery's out of the bag, the smog monster is just this guy in a black tunic, it's a lot less interesting. And we sort of got to maintain that sort of – we got to create a, a big enough universe around her that she remains compelling and interesting as a character. I think it's one of the – actually the, the coolest reveal of the – or, or I guess the interaction is um, you didn't know that guy Jeff's motives because uh, when you see the, uh, her, she's so away from everybody and she's a meekish, you know, librarian and then she's just daydreaming at a coffee shop and you're wondering why this guy has a vested interest in her and what what's his agenda is. You know, it's, it's an interesting play. Well, that's what I'm curious about because for me, I see it from minute one. But then again, I'm looking at it from a writer's point of view. Yeah. And, and what I'm praying is that when you watch the thing, that it's moving fast enough, you're not looking to the end. Mm-hmm. Because what happens is if anything plays slow enough, audiences are smart. People don't give them credit for being able to figure stuff out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had a friend I was watching Usual Suspects with and they figured it out in five minutes. Oh, yeah. And that made it not fun to watch it with them. <laughs> but, but, but the point is I was hoping the movie was dense enough and fast enough that when the, the resolution comes that it sort of is, is – if not surprising, it at least sort of people weren't thinking – they weren't ahead of the movie. Yeah. Um, but, but, I mean, too, to your credit, though, I mean, 
Yeah, you know, I knew the reason why she, uh, you know, hit that Patrick guy wasn't because of an overdue library book. Because, you know, you set up the little flashbacks a little bit. But that uh, Jeff was there as well was kind of interesting. Um, again, not surprising, but how it kind of gets resolved is really... I don't know if unusual is the right word because Jeff, for some reason, is like, oh, yeah, you know, I like you. Even though you hit my head, friend in the head with a baseball bat, I like you. And she comes back with the ice cream and you're like, oh, this is, you know, this is unusual. I mean, horror movies usually don't end like this. And she says that. And to me, it's actually kind of a scary line. And she says, you know, want to see what happens to bullies? And then she beats the shit out of him and uh and she kills him like jason Voorhees killed somebody and jason goes to hell by bashing his head in a door so um you know to me sometimes a normal person who does barbaric things like a jason is more terrifying than jason doing it well i'll be honest uh what i like about that last bit is there's nothing pre-meditated about it no and there's nothing being used that isn't right there and to me violence that happens organically always sticks with people more than violence that happens where, wow, I magically have the serrated blade in my jacket. It's kind of like we always, it's amazing how we always remember the violence that's based on like, if I decided to beat you in the head with this microphone right now, <laughs> it would be the, or, or your cell phone, it would be more memorable because we can relate to the violence. Mm-hmm. And I think there's sort of like several scales of it because I mean, I don't, I don't even see this as a horror movie. I see it as a dark comedy, but Genre, genre festivals seem to like it mm-hmm. because it sort of rides that line of reality with dark crap sort of right beneath the surface. Type yeah. Of thing. yeah. Because she also sees things that, you know, that, you know, to me, you know, the, she kind of sees things differently. You know, um, she saw the guy she hit with the baseball bats in the party everywhere. And then, uh, oh man, I can't remember the actress, but when they go into the bathroom, like her snap is immediate. It was the, the shove against her, and then she goes from, oh, I'm just a little librarian to something completely different. Um, it, it, so you, did you know that about her? Did you create a whole backstory with her? Where No, not at all. Because, no. <laughs> because to me, uh, I think that there's a – I knew how she would act, but it's one of those things where everyone – I don't know what it is with people, but everyone wants to spoil the mystery of a character. And to me, I don't want to know it because I just know how she will act, mm-hmm. and I know when she'll snap. But – I got to discover her as everyone else discovers her. And the beauty about Ginny is Ginny, I really structured the script. And what Ginny did as, as a writer is actually she didn't write as a writer. She wrote as an actress, meaning all of her work on the script was her as an actress where we would do a lot of improvs. Like uh, when we cast the lead actor of the piece, uh, Jeff Mills. Who did, it, who, who did a wonderful job where you feel really bad for him. <laughs> you do. <laughs> um, but we cast – we had like – we sort of cast everybody else immediately. We knew who we were going to cast when we were auditioning him. But then we were, we were in friendly disagreement about who was going to play the romantic lead. And so what we did was we just did a second audition with a slew of phenomenal actors that I'm working with immediately because they're all good. But they all had a different tone and energy. And what I did was I gave them all a script where she was talking up to a certain point in that final big conversation between them. And then she would go from there. So the script would read like a weird romantic comedy. Then she would improvise it going dark. And every actor had a different reaction to discovering that she's an utter psychopath. And it was very beautiful because since they didn't know it and they were improvising in the moment, there was these honest reactions and it was what she did with those actors that really was how I shaped the final sequence. Because I literally had like the rough sort of bricks of the sequence. Mm -hmm. But how it played out was really how she decided to take those in that moment. 
and she really helped shape that final sequence uh, and sort of helped give it its spine. And then it was like, oh, well, she just nailed it right there, and I typed it all out. And that's sort of how she really figured out the character. Because for a woman, for a woman to play a character like that that's so rare, they really sort of grab a role like that by the throat and really, they give it their all. Yeah, because, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't, uh, you kind of relate to Jeff, though, because, you know, when he's talking to me, he's like, it's that long ago. Let it go, you know? Uh, I didn't mean it, I didn't, but she didn't let it go. And um, I think that's an awesome character uh, moment because I think a lot of times, um, because it would be a romantic comedy and, you know, they would find that happy ending and the, the darkness, I love when it goes that way because it's, it's not expected. And you talked about it, too. You know, you want to find those moments where they're not going to find it. And so was that last scene improvised, too, or did you no, write it? No, 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 no. It was all scripted. But it's it, organic. But it came from the work that she did previously in her improvs. Right. And, and, she, and she came up with a beautiful thing in the uh, bathroom scene where she would just repeat the other girl's dialogue back at her. Because that scene was probably the most rewritten scene in the whole thing. And she found the whole sort of mimicking, mirroring thing that became sort of creepy cute at the same time. And we literally worked out the, the, the word that sort of sparked her into going crazy in the bathroom, which was uh, – I think it's too subtle for people to pick up, and I get it. Why? But it's because the other girl says the word head is really what oh, – wow, is what cues her. Oh, I, I don't want people to I, – I th- uh, that's, that's the answer for me. Mm. anyone else can have their own answer and I, and I know that it's one of those things that may be too sort of indirect for someone to go oh that's what it was but you know how it is yeah. filmmakers have their reasons and audience have their own reasons and right. never will they align <laughs> it's like talking to David Patrick Kelly about Donnie Darko it's just like <laughs> that's the movie in your head that's not the movie I saw and I love the movie in my head more than the movie you have in your head type of thing yeah. so however people interpret it is however they'll interpret it so in a, in a short like this that's uh, 15 minutes, is it hard to pace things properly? Um, because, you know, you, you said you have so much in it, and you do. And I thought your short was only literally like seven minutes because it's really good, and it's just whips, whips, whips. Um, and especially with a character who's so unique that you, you don't want to overstate her, but the pace is important for the audience to understand what's going on. Did you find that as a challenge when you were making the movie? That or? was the hardest part. The hardest part was the editing. Uh, the filming went beautifully. It went, uh, I mean, I've had good shoots. I've had bad shoots. And this shoot just went like like butter. It, <laughs> it just flowed. And you don't question it when it goes well, when the, when the cast clicks and people click. That's the weird thing about being a, about a director is people think you're spending all this time like directing an actor and telling this and that. But the point is, is that if you get a good actor and you sort of prep with them and talk with them a bit, they're good. They know what they're doing. They'll put it together well, and they'll do a beautiful job. And 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 uh, you'll hear that a lot, where like all the work is in casting, and that's true. Like my biggest direction to her was I wanted her to freeze the bottom half of her face so that all of her emotion was in her eyes, rather than you know in the lips and the cheeks and all that, so that you're reading her eyes more than the rest of her face. And that was really my biggest direction, and she took it and she ran with it. Um, God, I feel like I meandered away from your original question, though. Oh, no, just, uh, um, uh, but uh, in terms of editing, um, it really was finding – having all of the story because it's a dense story with a fair amount of characters for that amount of time. And it was really letting the air back into it because we had an 11-minute version of this. It didn't work. 
but we knew it and we had to do it so that we just slowly added back in pauses and character beats until it just felt right. And what's weird is um, realistically, even though we wrote it as a 25-minute piece, um, what's going to probably happen now is as a series – so probably a web thing. It'll probably the episodes will probably run, you know, fifteen twenty minutes and have that sort of faster energy than we originally expected. Because I find that so many uh, so many web shorts have a I like to call it Canadian TV feel, where it's like it's all <laughs> in one location. It's well shot. It's well acted. But you don't feel like they could walk out of the room and go into another place. Yeah. You, you don't feel it. And, and you know when you watch a show and you don't feel like we're ever going to leave this office or this or this house of this couple. And that's why we kept jumping around location-wise. I think we only repeated the library. And that was the point. We wanted to make it feel like the story could go anywhere. Hmm. And that's sort of like anything else we do has to maintain that sort of – it's like a little movie. Yeah. As opposed to a skit or a sketch. Oh, uh, one of the things that I think we've all been so impressed by is that all of these shorts have been – um, particularly professional looking and, and it's just a sign of the times that now so much cheaper you can make these movies on a low budget look so good but you had a very special opportunity to get the sound done at Skywalker uh, talk about how did that happen and what was that like well like I said Jeannie Marisa is a special human being I, I'd like to take credit for it but I'm not going to lie <laughs> um we managed to get two really good artists for our Kickstarter campaign, Phil Noto, who's a really good comic artist, wow. and Tara McPherson. And uh, they both did beautiful work for us, and I'm forever grateful to them. But Tara knew a phenomenal uh, sound, uh, uh, sound mixer at Skywalker Ranch, Brandon Proctor. And uh, at the same time, our producer, uh, I have to do a little shout-out to Christopher Shea, our producer, did a wonderful job, knew a phenomenal um, uh, phenomenal sound mixer, uh, Emmy winner from Sesame Street named Chris uh, Sassano. I I know I'm probably missing a few, a vowel in there or something. (laughs) But both Brandon and Chris really nailed it. They did a beautiful job, and we sort of – I pretty much knew that there was going to be this sort of sound design where the flashbacks and her sort of – the movie really is sort of inside Holly's head. So we knew that there were going to be weird sounds and stuff that were going to keep popping up to sort of go whenever Holly's having a non-flashback, so to say. And uh, and Chris really got it right in uh, in the design and then Brandon nailed it in the mix. And I mean, I've been the I've been the Skywalker Ranch before. Um, it, it's a beautiful place. It's one. Of, it's like it's quiet. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I've lived in L.A. And the thing is, it's just like wind blowing, and that's it. And then when you go inside, you'll work really hard, and there's really good equipment. You go back outside, it's like and and, and, and like beautiful golden slopes and cows over in the horizon, and you, all you see is the little lake, and. I mean, yeah, it's great when you meet George Lucas or Dennis Muren or Gary Reitstrom or whatever. But I think it's cooler when you get to use the toys <laughs> that the big boys use. And that's the part where I geek out, where I get to play with the toys. And then when you're there with them and then they listen to you and then they go, oh, my God, they're listening to you. And then when they go, I don't think that works. And you're right. Oh, my God, they're right. That doesn't work. <laughs> and that's the part where I think. I really geek out that you get that opportunity to play with the big boy toys. Yeah. And and they're so professional and respectful because what people don't know is 
Skywalker Ranch and Skywalker Sound in particular are very big on indie sound. Like uh, Take Shelter was just uh, was mixed there, oh. and a lot of indie projects are done there because they have a big support of, uh, of sort of independent voices and independent film. And a lot of people just never even bother to think to go to them about stuff because they think it will be, you know, prohibitively expensive as such. But no, they really, really want to support the community and they want to sort of give back. That's so cool. That's really cool. What um, what influenced you as a filmmaker? What When did you know that you wanted to make films and what movies really spoke to you? Well, I, I wanted to be an animator when I was a kid. Uh, I loved comics, as we, uh, as uh, I've been talking about, and uh, I, uh, I loved animated films. But I don't. I'm a right-brained guy. I like being around people. I don't like sitting in front of a desk too long. I like the interaction, and so animation never was for me. Uh, so I, uh, pretty much from 15 on, knew I wanted to be a filmmaker, even though I was sort of, for being a kid, I was sort of going up to it. I, I can't do anything else. I'm mentally handicapped that way but but um i knew immediately i wanted to be a filmmaker but the thing about filmmaking that's very tricky is is you both have to have a voice and you both have to work with people well and for my journey anyhow it's been really about learning humility and learning how to work with others and respecting others in the process because it's such a collaborative medium yeah and um and in particular, it's really giving other people the times and the moments to put their fingerprints on it. Because unlike, say, an animated film where you can plan at every moment, there's so many things that can screw up when you're filming and so many other things other people from other departments in front and behind the camera can give you that you have to be listening to them when they bring it to you. It happens. Yeah. So that when, you know... You know, Harrison Ford goes to Spielberg, hey, I'm, I'm sick. Let's just shoot the damn guy. And it gives you a brilliant moment. You listen to the person in front of you, and they give you a great moment. And um, in particular, I'm, I'm, I so love our cast in that movie. Uh, there's so many, it was funny. I was doing a transcript of the dialogue in the movie for the subtitle track recently because we're, we're going to a few foreign festivals right now. And so I went through and I actually subtitled the entire movie so that, you know, other people could translate into French or Portuguese or whatever they're going to do it. And I realized how all the dialogue is the dialogue we wrote, but it's also slightly tweaked by all the actors in little ways. Yeah. And one of my favorite lines is actually – is actually totally actually two my two favorite lines in the movie are totally improvised by the actors in between the real lines, and you got to be flexible like that. You gotta you gotta have ears at the same time that you've got your vision, and that's sort of that humility is the thing that isn't taught in taught in school. I think everyone is taught to be a general, not taught to be a foot soldier, and not taught to learn the process of everything else. And I've been a photographer. I've had my own theater group. I've acted. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an okay actor. But, I mean, I, I have done all these positions. I have done all these things. And so I respect the work that everyone brings and the point of view everyone brings to the process. So, um, But that's more, that's more of the mindset of it. In terms of what I love as filmmakers, I'm a big populist filmmaker guy in the end. I believe the best movies have a poppy quality to them and they engage everyone and then sneak in the little stuff. I mean, I mean, I can go geeky and say, yes, I think Kurosawa was one of the greatest writers for film ever. <laughs> I can say, oh, I think Hitchcock was the most amazing framers for camera ever. I can say early Spielberg was that amazing mixture of like 70s, 70s photography with like 
the best of American craftsmanship or Scorsese or, or on an animation site, Hayao Miyazaki or Ozu or whatever. I can go geeky on that. But the point is I think there's this pop mix that is why people love Wizard of Oz, why people love Casablanca. And these were not designed to be movies to be the best movies ever made. Right. They were designed to be entertaining movies. And the best movies have that mix between the pop and the art where they just blend together, where they exist side by side. And, and they're just so full of life that you'll revisit them a thousand times. And that's where I think the best stuff is. So I'm not big on the sort of uber art in your head, internalized cinema. I don't believe cinema is internalized. Cinema, cinema is emotional. Cinema is aggressively emotional. And it's just that sort of that unique new art form that combines every other art form that I love. And so I'm always learning from it. Because I'll tell you right now, I mean, in terms of the short, I see some Fincher in it, definitely. I see some Ridley Scott in it. I see some Spielberg in it. But that's not my one style. I mean, the movie I made before that, it's called Holy Hell. I have it as an iPad app. I shot it totally handheld. And because I had a lot of actors, I didn't have much time to shoot. And I totally took a totally different technique than what you see in Quiet Girl. But you, you sort of take the voice that you feel works for the material. So do you, so, I mean, just to follow up, so you never feel handcuffed to a specific style, I guess. So you could shoot anything you, so everything really excites you shooting wise. Mm -hmm. Is that why, uh, cause quiet girl has moments where you're right. It has the romantic comedy element and then it has kind of the crime little bit in it. And then it has the horror element in it. Then the thriller, um, is that just because you like so many and you don't you want everybody to be entertained by your movies well i don't think everyone could be entertained with quiet girl <laughs> but at the same time i want it to be aggressively uh engaging meaning i i think that there's so many different style wise it bounces through through so many different elements like some one thing i learned on the project is you can have handheld in the movie as long as you do it side by side with some uh, non-handheld handheld work. So literally, there'll be scenes that are totally not locked down. And in the scene after it, there's not a single shot that isn't either on a dolly or, uh, or on sticks. And I actually learned that of all things from Alien, which is a beautiful movie, which is a mixture of both ver- verite and the best of studio filmmaking. You know, a little... Um, and, and I don't think Alien by itself influenced it by itself, but I know that that sort of keeping an eye out for what an audience can accept. So... There's a very particular reason why all the awkward scenes are handheld because handheld makes you feel slightly uncomfortable. But this mm-hmm. isn't like the mumblecore handheld. It's very <laughs> sort of it, – it, it's the – and I have a rule about handheld that I stick to, which is you always shoot handheld as if you're shooting it like a normal movie. And I think too many people shake the camera for no good reason. The camera is yeah. going to shake when you're handheld no matter what you do. So you just let it happen. But try to not shake the camera. And that way I think the shake has more of a – cleanness to it it doesn't distract you and you don't think about it no i i agree 100 percent. i think that's one of my biggest problems sometimes with um action movies now is you know that handheld where it starts on the character's face and he just might be talking to somebody then all of a sudden it like kind of falls down and goes back up and it just it's distracting well i don't get it in a movie that i like like star trek where there's all this handheld and there's two people in the middle of iowa talking in a bar and the camera's shaking. Like, what's making the camera shake? Is, is there like an earthquake in Iowa that I'm not aware of? Neither of them are angry or ir- irritated. It's like a quiet scene, yet the camera constantly shakes. And I'm like, what's the motivation behind the shakiness? Yeah. And, and that's what I don't get is it's this de facto. It, it's like literally what people slap on to say, this is emotionally real. <laughs> this means that this means something. When in fact, 
the best handheld is invisible. Like John McTiernan, I think is, I think he's a god of action filmmaking, and his handheld, you don't notice it, you forget it. And I think that's the best stuff. It's the stuff where you're in the world, you're in the movie, and if you notice the handheld, I think yeah. they screwed up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, I'm trying to I don't want you to ask me any questions, <laughs> Ryan and James. No, there, was a, there was a point no. back there where I was going to say amen, but uh, I think that's it. Um, I guess you said you're working on expanding this short into the web series. Is there anything else like not horror related you're working on? Or uh, um, like every guy in the business, I'm working on five thousand things. Yeah. Um, I'm a big collaborator. I'm a multitasker, to be honest, and I work best when I'm working on a few things at once. Like everyone, I'm working on some futures, blah, 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 blah. Uh, the thing that's really come from me that's really sort of – I get transmedia. Everyone makes a joke about it in the industry, and people outside the industry go, what's transmedia? <laughs> but, but I think it's this thing that I really think it's the future when – especially if you're like a comic book fan. Oh, yeah. Because – you know how you would read, like, Uncanny X-Men. Then you would read uh, X-Factor and then New Mutant. Then there would be the annuals, and then there would be the crossovers. It's, it's, it, I grew up with that. So to me, that's what transmedia is. It's where you tell a whole series of self-contained stories that then bleed into each other and then become a, sort of an uber-narrative while each separate narrative works in its own merit. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think it is, where you do something that works as a movie, then you do a comic that works within itself, and then you do something else that works within itself. I finally feel like Marvel, the Marvel movies in the last two movies, like with Captain America and Avengers, have finally figured it out. But, you know, they're taking a few movies to get there. And it's now a universe within itself. Yeah. Granted, the fans are going to have to accept that it's a different interpretation than what they grew up with for 20 years. But, you know. <laughs> Tough titty. Yeah. That, that, that's the name of the game. When it, but when, when they're that good, I think we're okay with it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, it, you know, yeah when you get Ruffalo and, and, yeah. and Downey just sort of like, <laughs> we, we can do this any time of the day, and you're like totally <laughs> yeah. captivated by them. Who cares if the alien horde is boring? Yeah. Who cares <laughs> exactly. if there's no real threat? You will watch those characters for two and a half hours, and you don't care. Yep. <laughs> Something about making it so effortless is oh, the yeah. most amazing thing ever. And I feel like the characters in comics have been reinvented within the comics many times already that when uh, fans of the movies complain that, oh, it doesn't capture like this character exactly as it is, it's like, <laughs> you can't go, it which doesn't one? matter. Like, yeah. yeah like, <laughs> and, and, it, it has to serve whatever the movie is like going to be. And I think that the big problem with modern audiences, and this isn't just comic fans, this is just people who watch media in general, they don't know how to suspend this belief. Because... I will ask all of you, did all of you really believe that every single effect shot in the Star Wars movies and Indiana Jones and Gremlins were real? No. no. We didn't. We knew, we saw how the, the ghost and Ghostbusters didn't match up with the environment. We accept that it was representing something. And I think we have a culture that doesn't watch theater, that doesn't accept musicals unless they're glee, no. and don't really engage the idea of this represents something. This isn't reality. This is representing reality. Mm-hmm. And it's whether or not we achieve some Something emotionally that it connects with us that is important. Not the it look that green man destroying things looks perfectly real. Right. No, I agree. I, you know, um, we because we do obviously a movie podcast. We've been going back and watching a lot of the older movies, and there is you see why they captivate people. It's not. I just watched Singing in the Rain. And I think it's an amazing movie. And you know, now you couldn't sell an audience on a guy um, just being silly, saying make them laugh, make them laugh. You couldn't sell an audience now because they want to hear them do a rendition of 
I don't know, some Paula Abdul pop song. Well, 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 well <laughs> and not only that, taking like Rocky Horror Picture Show and taking the sex out of it. But yeah, it's like, why do they knock over the couch? Why do they walk over the couch? What does that mean? I would never do that. And it's like, no, it's, it's yeah. I mean, there's nothing is, I mean, if you can't love singing in the rain, I don't know what to do with you. Dude. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, there's nothing more fun than like watching Gene Kelly dance. It's, oh, it, man. it's like why we suffer through the dumbest plots in Jackie Chan movies to watch him just be a god of movement. It's because, you know he loves being in front of you. You know he loves he wants to enter. You know he wants to entertain you. Yeah. There's not like a mean bone in what he's trying to pull off. And then you go with it. And I really don't like the idea that you're too cool for school. That you that oh that could never happen <laughs> or anything like that. And you can't give yourself over to something because I think that's removing yourself from the best part of why we watch all, all why all we why we geek out over this stuff well i think part of that especially with the internet is it's turned you know we've sort of made or at least i have made my mantra into this whole like i want to like every movie and that's how i mm-hmm. go into every movie no matter what it is even if i know i'm gonna hate it i'm gonna try real hard to like it and i think that the i don't know if it's the internet but that's what the part of me that wants to blame the internet um <laughs> where there's almost this pride in being able to say like i knew that wasn't real or ah, oh, that it, it never fooled me. Or I saw it coming, and it's just like it's the wrong way to approach a movie. You're not going there to be entertained anymore. You're going there to beat it, and that's not no. It's not why I, I paid ten dollars for this. Like, are you kidding me? Um, it, it's just a different, uh, a different atmosphere for seeing movies now. And I think you're right, James, because you know, following back up to Quiet Girl, you know, you were worried that I would, you know, people would catch the, you know, the guy at the end as being nice to her because. He was a bully to her, but I didn't get that because I was so invested in the whole universe you created that, well, maybe this guy just sees that because, I mean, she's pretty, you know, she's, but I think she looks pretty cute. I love the glasses and everything. So um, I think that's, uh, I think James is right. You know, you have to go in accepting what you're seeing and, um, it, oh, it I mean, not, come on, let, let's be honest. If someone who looked like that worked at a library, she would be hit on 10 times a day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let, let, let's not confuse it. This is movie reality here. Yeah, no reading would get done at all. Yeah, 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 not at all. They they would go, yeah, I'm reading James Joyce again, so what are you doing? Or something like that. It's impossible. But, again, Ginny is just a very charismatic – she's got those beautiful blue eyes that yeah. work great on – on camera type of thing, but it's one of those things. It's a representative thing. Yeah. We we engage in it and we accept the sort of the artificial reality aspect of it to get to the emotion of it. And I don't know what it says about me. I'm attracted to someone who's kind of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Is my wife crazy? I don't know. I don't think so. Maybe. Maybe she has a little crazy in her. But that, that's, a, that's a tribute to the, how great the, I think the movie was uh, in okay. such a short amount of time. Because you sympathize with her and you don't feel bad for her doing that to those people. You're like, you know what? If I, if I could, I would do that to bullies. It's, <laughs> it's amazing how you, know, you put a woman in that situation. You immediately are on her side. And I think the, good, the question for me on it is like, do they really deserve it? And granted, we don't answer that. I mean, there's a bit <laughs> of ambiguity <laughs> to it. But my favorite joke of the movie, man, we're totally spoiling everything, but again, it's a short, yeah. uh, is that how lame the boys are when they're insulting yeah. her because they're not yeah. cool. No. Because we had a line reading in the movie where, where we were trying to peg this line reading where they were mean and evil, and the boys couldn't do it because they're like you know, 15-year-olds and they were sort of lame about it. <laughs> and, and it's so fun because my favorite thing is they're like, they say the horrible line and they go, yeah. <laughs> and you're like, oh my God, these guys are such dorks. And the fact that that would traumatize someone from a, from a certain perspective is to me 
really funny. <laughs> it is, yeah. Yeah. And don't be late with your library books to Never. the library because mm. that's no. how she'll find you. On actually, my, the, my biggest laugh in the the movie is uh, the hipster douchebag Patrick on his mm-hmm. Facebook, and he said "everyday bitches," and he has, a, <laughs> he has a, a coffee cup, and he's outside a coffee thing and pointing at the camera. I'm like, I hate those guys on Facebook. I mean, anyone that she messes with is basically a thing I hate. <laughs> so if you want to know what I hate, it's whatever people do, like bad performance art. Uh, yeah, oh, I, yeah, I'm not I, a fan. I forgot about that part. Ribbons, oh, that ribbons, was traumatizing. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's funny because I know we're hitting a, sh- a wall when we're talking about the short. Because, again, it's 15 minutes. It's not like there's <laughs> layers of story information did, going on here. You did make me remember the guy who was standing next to Jeff in line at the, at the beginning. And he's trying to talk to her and invite her. And then the dude just slowly leans into frame like, come on, man. I want to get my coffee. Um, that's uh, that's Byron Brown. I, I, that was a thing. I wanted you to remember him later because he because he's sort of the little <laughs> lackey to Ivy, uh, the character Kelly Brown, uh, Kelly Bland plays. Byron is an amazing actor. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll do a little plug for him real quick. Check out the Doritos Make Your Own Ad thing. He was on this video uh, that uh, that got like literally the day we shot the sequence where he gets all the whipped cream mm-hmm. come on his head. Um, he. Like this video that he was in was blowing up, like got like a million views in one day where it was this guy showing how he makes Doritos. And uh, and it was this, you know, quick 30 second commercial. It's hysterically funny. But Byron is just a little kamikaze of comedy. (laughs) I mean, he just sort of he does any you put him in a scene. He can steal it, you know, in five seconds, put it in his pocket and walk away. Well, I mean, he has that throwaway line, too. He says, I have chocolate syrup all over my body. That's it. (laughs) <laughs> that's his line improvised <laughs> improvised we had him run through a whole series of lines and we knew that he was just going to nail whatever he was going to say so it's like we just ran a series <laughs> and then we just funny. picked the one that he played you know the the deadpanist <laughs> that's too funny that's great so enough about my movie i'm going to geek out about something real quick cool. what's, some, what's something worth geeking out about um, what was the last thing you saw yeah, was well i just saw the shorts program but no uh, no no no, no. Uh, um <laughs> well let's see you're talking to a guy who's just been festivaling. So that's like saying, what's oh, the yeah, last 50? you were 15? just at Fantastic Fest. I was at Fantastic Fest. And, what did you love at Fantastic Fest? Uh, Holy Motors. Oh, my God. That movie's wonderful. Um, it's, it's, that, it's that movie I don't want to talk about in detail because it's that movie that refuses to answer itself. It's just like a pure movie of just pure what is going on here. But it's made with such precision and honesty that – I was sucked on for the two and a half hours of it. Uh, all I have to say is, if it's on the big screen in your hometown, you see that movie because uh, let's see. And then, and then Looper, of course, is out. I know yeah. you guys love it. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Ryan Johnson, of course, is. Uh, I mean, I still think he made the best debut movie of the two thousands with Brick. It's Absolutely. such a perfect little movie, and so. I think all of us have just been quietly waiting for him to show that, yeah, yeah, he's, he's just as good as we thought he was. <laughs> um, and then there was a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, it was actually, it was a good run of stuff. Uh, Judge, Judge, no, Dread was a fun B movie, I thought. Yeah, meaning yeah. It, it delivered what it needed to. I want Alex Garland to make, that guy seems born for genre because he's both very humanist, but he knows, he knows to give us the Paul Verhoeven movie that we've been like wanting for so yeah. long. I declare war is a fun one. Um, I'm trying to think. I saw like 15 movies, so it was, uh, I'll say it wrong. Everyone calls it Bavarian Sound Studio, but it's like Bavarian. It's Toby Jones in this movie as this sound uh, editor for this Giallo movie, and you never see this horror movie he's making. It's purely from the point of view of the sound guys. It's it's 
it's very flawed at times, but it's so beautifully made at all the other times that you, uh, you'll get sucked up by it if you're a big cinema fan. Cool. Um, God, there's a few others. Um, and mixed name to ones that I don't like, of course, because <laughs> uh, you never know who's listening. Yeah. <laughs> never know. Um, but, um, but, um, no, um, I'm I'm forgetting. There's tons of stuff, but there was just again. You you see so many movies. Like you're seeing five movies a day sometimes, and, mm-hmm. and in your yeah, they just blend together in your brain. Um, oh, I just saw at the festival. It was at uh, Fantastic, but I missed it at Fantastic. Um, Errors of the Human uh, Body. Oh yeah. And uh, Michael Eklund, who I let, met there, uh, a class act man, and I'm happy to say he's a class act actor. He really, really was fantastic in the movie. Uh, very well acted all across the board, and it was really solid. Uh, a few others I'm looking forward to. I'm going to go see Battery tonight. We are, too. We're really looking forward to that oh, yeah. one. Because yeah, we yeah. found out their makeup designer is one of our fans. Like, really? <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah. who we are. All right. Yeah, yeah. Well, th- well, that's what's so funny is that business-wise is, no, is that you eventually realize you know so many other people, which is why it, it doesn't do you any benefit to be like a mean girl. Because mm. it will bite you oh, in yeah. the ass. <laughs> it, it's like you will bump into someone who knows someone, and it'll be at the weirdest moment. Too. <laughs> <laughs> w- w- which is what's weird because when you're at a festival and you bump into other filmmakers, is it's it's that sort of explaining to a virgin type of thing. You can't explain what it's like to make a movie to someone else that's made a movie because it doesn't matter if they don't like your movie. They empathize with you. <laughs> they empathize with what you went through. And so there's this sort of, yeah, that was that. Yeah, that was that. And everyone else will be like, oh, I thought your movie was pretty good, but you could be better. And your mind is just like, oh, that was so hard to make. <laughs> and so the other pr- people will still empathize with the difficulty and all the challenges you went with, regardless of their opinion on the actual project. And that's what I sort of love about it, because it's not that thing where you're in the industry and you're just being professional polite. There's this genuine sort of, I like to consider it like, it's like a festival is like a filmmaker coffee shop after midnight <laughs> where you're hanging out and you're having the long two hour discussions about something or the things that are in your head that you don't ever get to talk about at any other point in time, unless you have a podcast, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, but it becomes that place where all the barriers are down and you seem to have the most honest filmmaking conversations that I think I've ever had. Oh, I, I agree. I, you know, we did Mile High Horror Fest last week, and I was shocked about the candid conversations we would have yeah. with people. We interviewed an actor, and his point of view for making a movie was different than a director's point of view. And it, it's a really cool, like, close knit group. And you, um, one thing we kind of got over is uh, that people are so nice. You know, it's always uh, intimidating a- asking a filmmaker like you, say, oh, will you please sit on our podcast, please? <laughs> and what you learn is most of them are like us. They just make the movies we enjoy. Yeah. And <laughs> well, it's, well, I was just talking with Gabriel, one of our one, one of the hosts of the festival, and I was like, you're creating content, too. The only difference is your contra- content is is sort of in context to our content, but it's still content. You have to produce the episodes. You'll get worked up when something that you worked on isn't as good as you want to, and you angst over it, and you angst about how this didn't work and how that didn't work. Your turnaround is just faster. (laughs) But it's the same constant. You're generating stuff that you hope is good and you hope people are like, and you hope is honest and sort of says what you want to do. It's 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 the same thing. It's just it's it's just a different thing. I bet a baker feels the same way about a cake. (laughs) It's like I really hope they like my tiramisu I just did. You know that type of thing. That's funny. 
Brad, you're a filmmaker. Do you have any questions for a filmmaker? I put him on the spot. I love doing that. He's, 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 oh, well, he's been monitoring the sound, so he's been yeah. like watching and judging the entire time. <laughs> well, you've been so thorough, like as it is, like you're saying before, like two filmmakers get together and they try to talk about you know the process, and it's like yeah, like you just kind of relate and accept it's because you already know how some things work. So there's not really like, well, how did you know how did the camera work for you? Like that doesn't <laughs> doesn't further the discussion. But um, um, I just did the 48 hour uh, film project for like the third year in a row and. Uh, it's always a different animal each time, and uh, like, do you work with a lot of the same people, or like you said, you like to collaborate a lot? So. Um, on the writing level, I tend to collaborate a lot. I love writing with other people because, uh, as a writer, um, I don't like internalizing the project uh, process of hating myself and hating what I did. I'd like yep. someone else to hate what I do because it makes it easier in arguing it out, and it sort of externalizes the process of what you, as a writer, do. Because to me, writing is 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 in some ways much easier than I think writers make it out to. That's why I don't like movies about writers because it makes them into such a self-torturing thing. And the point is you have an amount of time, you have to come up with a story, and you got to write it out. And between writing and casting, we pretty much had less than a month between writing up the idea of Quiet Girl and casting. And we did rewrites while we were casting once we saw the actors and we did tweaks, but just from first draft, the, the story never changed. It was only dialogue. In relation to the characters, it wasn't the sort of the, the, the spine of the script that didn't change. And I feel that uh, restrictions on any level of production always invigorate it if you embrace what the assets of the restrictions are. And like the 48-hour thing, I've, I've helped out some friends on them, and uh, they're always fun in terms of you got to come up with the best idea. It's not about being you're the person who makes it wonderful. It's that all of you together for 48 hours come up with the best idea and the amount of time that you have that make it work. Now, I've done also the Drunken Film Festival thing, which is just like the thing where you're where everyone on the team but one is drunk and you have to do it <laughs> and then you have to watch it when you're sober. It, it's <laughs> it's, uh, it's uh, interesting. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, but I mean like, like what do you shoot on? What do you... Uh, whatever I can get my hands on. Uh, I started out with a VX2000, which is like a PD-150. Um, I'm trying to get into a DSLR. Um, and then the for this year, we used a friend's... Um, oh, shoot, what is it? It was a Canon. It's was, it was comparable, to, comparable to an HVX2000. Was it... So I'm just going to laundry list. Or 200, uh, yeah. T2i, 7D, 5D, 1D? Uh, I haven't shot with it. Well, actually, I guess I used a D5100 for... Um, last year but like this year it was a you know it was, it was a video camera not a dslr so okay. i'm trying to get a dslr because they're they're so good i mean yeah. we shot on dslrs and i have lenses that i used on the project that are more expensive than the cameras themselves to be honest yeah. um and the lenses are so important and i think that's the thing when we're talking about the the, the democracy of of uh well it's not film anymore but the, the <laughs> yeah. democracy of movies is that um yeah the equipment is so good that that uh that uh, I mean, I've shot on film. I didn't really enjoy it because I knew digital was coming, and I'm like, why teach myself all these tools? I'm going to have to dump in a heartbeat. So I literally just did other stuff for several years in the industry until I knew the technology was good enough, and then I was like, okay, I, I'm going to make movies again. Because um, I was just at, at that age where avids were starting to happen and digital wasn't quite there yet, but I saw it, I saw it growing every year so quickly. I, I knew by Moore's law it was going to be good enough. And... I think in one way that's sort of – that's so uh, – to a lot of people, I know that's sort of like 
oh my God, there's so many people else out there that all of them are making their movies like, and I don't know if I'm good <laughs> enough. But the truth is, is that quality does metaphor wise does show up yeah. your ability to tell a story well will always show out in the end and uh and that's that's what always happens with shorts is that you have shorts that are you you'll see some beautiful shorts with good effects work but they're stories whatever mm. and then you'll have a less expensive one that was shot for nothing at like you know a 10th or a 20th or a 30th of the cost of a an effects real one that just has such clean acting and storytelling and just saying something that you're like well forget it well clearly that's it it gives people that opportunity i think the big problem now is because there's so much of it out there you have to find a way to to get it out there and and a way to uh, this word's sort of a bad word but brand it and get people to notice it and i think you have to set aside some energy and some focus to figure out how you're going to present it because it's all it's all part of it it's all part of the wind up and pitch of getting someone to see a project and that's the thing I think we really benefited from is that because Ginny's uh, design firm uh, was so good at sort of getting uh, getting the sort of thing out. Is, I mean, we're short. I mean, it's a short. Shorts mean nothing in the end. I mean, I mean, can you sell a short? Can you put a short in a movie theater? You can't. But I think we really got some wonderful exposure by the fact that it just – it's so well presented, even outside of the thing itself, that people sort of – instantly notice it from from even our logo type of thing and sort of going into it and 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 my sort of approach on that is that's part of the process it's sort of advertising is not a bad thing it's not a bad thing mm-hmm. it's part of the storytelling because you remember the good posters to movies you love they say nothing they give you a mystery and you go why is that guy holding that ring in his hand and he looks like he's so sad <laughs> why are those kids riding those little boats to that castle type of thing or whatever it's like that poster that i mean come on that phantom menace poster of anakin with the shadow of vader that's is more poetic than any of the prequels that's yeah yeah yeah, absolutely so oh i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you no no no. how how do you get noticed then because i mean you said yourself that they don't play shorts in movie theaters and i mean so is it just a you shoot it and then you put it out there and hope festivals pick it up or how does Um, that work I don't know how it works, to be honest. <laughs> um, um, I feel there's a luck factor involved that I can't deny. So I, I can't. I'm, I'm not the king of. Uh, uh, I, I'm not the king of shorts or anything. Uh, <laughs> it's only thinking of the king of shorts. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like Work Davis is the king of shorts. Wow, nicest guy in the world. I can, I'm sorry, but you're not going to make it into the shorts this year. Away from you. But um, um, but um, it's. It's really just sort of putting yourself out there and being uh, an extrovert and being friendly and being honest. The nice thing about it is people always make fun of the idea that you're schmoozing and networking and finger quoting, as I'm doing right now, (laughs) as if it's a bad thing. But the point is, if you love what you did and you're honest about what you did, people smell the honesty on you. Mm -hmm. and And they'll give you half a chance if you really just sort of are friendly about it. And just don't feel bad when when that hot girl film festival says no to you, you just keep going. There's enough festivals out there. And and don't, the thing I really think is uncool is when people don't get into a good festival, even though they've done a good short, and they get pissy about it on the internet. I mean, everyone's going to see that. That's like writing a bad letter to your ex-girlfriend about something. (laughs) And then, but the whole world got to see it. It just comes off as unprofessional. And the thing is, you know, just, there's always another opportunity. There's another, always another place. Keep plugging ahead at it. And even if your short wasn't that good, do another one 
and just keep working at it because you have to be stupid about it. And stupid in a way that you're not going to do anything else. It's what you want to do. So keep doing it until it gets out there. And that's all it is because it's um, you're leaping into the void when you make that choice to do that. And you have to accept the consequences of that means I may be poor for a while. That may mean that I'll be totally frightened with fear that I mortgaged whatever to make this thing. But that's that's actually the, the journey and the process of it that you have to embrace that uncertainty of making something. And then just enjoy it along the way because there isn't a point where everyone goes, here's your bag of gold. And, <laughs> and, and, and then you don't do anything. No, you do the next thing and you do the next thing. And that's, that's what the business is. It's, it's you're perpetually doing something new. So uh, the joy you get is the process rather than, a, than the final result. I think the lesson we just learned is that there's a hot girl film festival and that we need <laughs> no, to No, it was a metaphor. We need to <laughs> it's go. It's a metaphor. It's <laughs> <laughs> a metaphor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like that. But you know what I mean? It's like the hot yeah, girl. I it's know. just like, yes, can you go to pharmacy? <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but I think you're right. I think, um, I think fear sometimes can be a great motivational tool. Because if you don't have the fear, then you won't get behind it. Um, I mean, I, I, I work for a living, and my fear is that I'm not going to be able to provide for my wife. So I think that's a, a, an admirable thing because I think the fear drives people, and you can't be afraid of the fear. No, it, yeah. You should it's, use it as a, a springboard. And you're not going to be perfect. And I think that what people are afraid of is they see like sheer perfection as they perceive it in these big, high-scale projects, and they think, there's no way I could do that. Well, you're right. You can't do that. So don't worry about it and go and do the thing you can do and you'll have your flaws. And man, there's flaws in what we've done that, that my partners will give me shit about, but I'm like, whatever it is what it is at this point. And, uh, people seem to enjoy it. So you sort of let it go and sort of like, it is what it is. And then you beat yourself up at the same time where you go, I know that could have been better, but it is what it is. And then the next thing you know will be better. And you learn from the mistakes of that, and it all builds off of it. Because that's what I love about Blu-rays. You know how you, like, you watch a movie on Blu-ray, and you went, <laughs> it's one of the best movies ever made, and that shot's out of focus. <laughs> and, and, and it's sort of those flaws that you see in high def sort of make everything slightly more attainable. And, mm-hmm. and the people that you idolize and wish you were just a little bit more human in that way. And that... I don't know, that that encourages me as opposed to making me feel bad in any way. I think that's a great way to end this. (laughs) That was really profound. That was awesome. Hey, but where can we find you online? Is there a place we can go to check out your stuff? Okay. um, Well, we've got several things. Uh, First, uh, Quiet Girl's Guide to to Violence uh, is at uh, quietgirlsguide.com, but... uh, the most current information is on our webs, uh, web in terms of Facebook. And we're constantly updating what's going on with us. Um, at the same time, uh, to do my uh, secondary plug, uh, my movie Holy Hell is currently available as uh, an iPad app. Uh, the first of its kind, unless anyone can prove otherwise. It premiered as an iPad app back in January, literally in the middle of shooting uh, the library sequence of the movie. And um, what it is is it's meant to be a uh, multimedia experience in terms of you get the movie, but at the same time there is uh, 50, 50 minutes of supplemental and extended uh, footage in the app and another 100 pages or so of in-world uh, uh, text and media. And it was a real experiment. I used to be a, a DVD producer back uh, a long time ago. And so I've always big on like how you 
how you give extras to a movie, how you yeah. make it more than just the movie. And me and my uh, writing producing partner, uh, Lo Bartholomew, really put together, I think, a really beautiful package of, of like you watched a movie and then there's this wonderful world we did in connection to it. And it was a real chance we took because this was a movie we festivaled and then we saw the market was so glutted and we said, you know, we got to find a new, neat, clever way to present this because there's, there's so many new movies on Netflix streaming. It just becomes one of another yeah. movies. And I think it's a new approach that uh, I'm really excited by. And I'm saying that outside of being that, well, I got to sell this to you. I mean, it really, <laughs> it, it, it really is a fun experience and it, it, it really shares the love of this world that we created. Uh, at the same time, I have a web series called Artiste Impressions I do. Um, that's about follows a wine winery called Artiste. Uh, um, it's a winery in Santa uh, and just north of Santa Barbara and uh, and uh, San Inez Valley. Um, and uh, it's a wonderful little series and a wonderful little winery that we I do literally just for jollies. Cool. And then there'll be other stuff too, but whatever. <laughs> That's still a lot of stuff. That's so yeah, cool, yeah, a movie yeah. app. Yeah. That just blew my mind. I'm going to have to buy an iPad. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, sir, thank for you sitting so much, down. We really appreciate it so much. Thank you. Yeah, that was awesome. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Raphael, for stopping by. We really appreciate it. Again, taking so much time out to talk to us, not only during the interview, but also making us feel comfortable at Telluride because, again, it, it, it's always nerve-wracking getting filmmakers to be on your show because yeah. you don't know if they want to or not. And so... Thank you so much for geeking out with us. And, you know, there's times when I was waiting for you guys left because we we're waiting for Laura. I was waiting for Laura to come back from the movie she was seeing by herself. And he sat there and hung out with me, too. Yeah. So I really he appreciate was, he it. He was just so gracious with his time. Just the fact that he spent that much time with us was amazing. And we can say we had a breakfast with filmmakers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was. Yeah. That, that whole experience made that trip worth it for sure. Absolutely. So. Stay tuned next week when we unleash another amazing interview that the real nerds did at some horror show. Which one will it be? You'll never know. Well, until next week. Until next week. But I actually kind of know which one we're doing. But I'm going to leave you on the edge of your seat. So you have to listen to our podcast. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.